When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. This is the Tom Bernard Show. Filling in for Tom Bernard, I'm Dave Schrader, along with... Breastmaster, not Beastmaster, Ralph Toy Basham, MD. Andy Brand Bernard. Cassie Schrader. We will be back. Stay tuned. This is the Tom Bernard Show. Walzer Automotive Group started in Minnesota over 60 years ago. Most people know something about the Walzer way. Upfront, no haggle pricing, work with one person from start to finish, or the free lifetime powertrain warranty on most vehicles sold in Minnesota. What you might not know is they are the only automotive group that is a member of the Keystone Club. They join such great Minnesota companies as General Mills, Target, Cargill, the Twins, Wolves, and Vikings in pledging 5% pre-tax profits to local charities. It's a great example of their core values. Do the right thing, display positive energy, be open-minded, and lead by example. So if you're in the market for a new or used car, check out walzer.com or stop into one of their dealerships. Please don't say, tell them Tommy sent you, because it sounds fake, and I hate it. Walzer Automotive Group, walzer.com. Michael Bryant, Brad Sean Bryant, what's the latest? Well, basically, we're trying to represent people who have been hurt and talk to them before they talk to an adjuster. Uh, one of the key points is to make sure you know what your rights are before you start talking to the insurance company, and they start asking you questions, or they try to settle your case early and cheap. Well, what's interesting to me is, you know, a lot of people have fear of attorneys. It makes them very uncomfortable. They get nervous about it. What should I do? I've known Michael for years and years now, and I would highly recommend you. So that should be good enough for everybody because I don't endorse people who are dirtbags. Well, I appreciate that. Um, but I guess the key is, is people think I'll charge them if I talk to them. Right. So a lot of people call me up. It's like, how much is this going to cost if you call me back? Like, you want me to call you back? How much will that cost? I don't charge people. The only way I get paid is if we recover, um, if we get money from the, the other side. And there's a lot of people I talk to that I never get paid for that are just part of giving them advice to make sure they know what they can do and what their rights are. And your record's terrific as well, we should point out. Well, it works. It's been good. It's been good, ladies and gentlemen. It's been good. And how do they contact you? uh, Either through our website, which is minnesotapersonalinjury.com, minnesotapersonalinjury.com, or at 800-770-7008. Michael Bryant, Bradshaw, and Bryant. Get my lighter out. Saw them in Long Beach. Did you really? Long Beach uh, Civic Center, yeah. Oh. Amazing show, I guess, huh? Yeah. You know. This uh, is the Tom oh, Bernard Show. Tom's off till tomorrow. Filling in, I'm Dave Schrader. Tom's Ralph. doing some charity thing? And I'm pining over the concert with Jim Morrison. Was yeah. it a good show, or was oh, it, it one where he was hammered out of his head? It was mind. a wonderful show. Oh, of course he was hammered. I was out of his head. He was always out of his head. <laughs> but, you know, well, it was a great show. Don't hold uh, back. The, what do the, you really the, think? The buddies, the buddies that I were with are all high. Uh-huh. I was straight. Um, I, I loved the show. It was great. You know, we were staying in Pasadena. We drove down through. I remember this just day. We drove down past the Hollywood Bowl mm-hmm. all the way down to Long Beach. And uh, that was before there was so much traffic. You couldn't take the pipes. Then we drove down and then uh, drove back after the show. It was just a wonderful time. What a great time. He used to, uh, the, the Doors, I didn't realize this, they were like the house band for, um, was it CBGB's? Or what, what's the one in, in California that was well, the I thought. Were they, weren't they the house band for uh, the Whiskey A Go Go? That's yeah, what it was, Whiskey A Go Go. And I, I love the story is that it's like 
Jim would get so drunk he'd go out and lay in the ditch out out in front and nap it off during shows. And they're like, uh, "What is Jim okay?" They're like, "Yeah, just leave him be. He'll be okay in an hour." And then he'd get up and go back in and do some more shows, and then he'd get sick and go back out and lay in the ditch. Yeah, well, <laughs> what a weird point in history. And they were fired once or twice, right? And they would they'd beg them to come back, so they'd beg him to come back. They'd hire them back. And the whiskey's still there. You know, we I drove past every time I drive past it on Sunset when we had, when we were out there. I always fascinated. I'm like, oh, there's the whiskey. I should go on the whiskey. But I never did. I, I always went into uh, the uh, key club. Is that the, the one that's right across the street? Which is the one right across the street from the whiskey? There's another big club that they always talk about that the two were like in opposing corners. And they, they well, the always key, had the key club is down bands. the street. It's down the street. It's not opposite. Okay. Opposite was, is the, uh, was the Virgin Record Store. I think it was right opposite okay. of, the, uh, of the whiskey on Sunset there. Um, yeah. What year was this that you saw the doors? Oh. 1970. Man, I would love to have seen a show like that. Oh, yeah. And I miss, and, and about that same time, I miss seeing Janis Joplin. All my buddies oh, really? went to see Janis. I, I, I don't know why I didn't do that. It was She'll stupid. be around forever. She'll be around forever. <laughs> I'll catch her next time. And, and that's, and, and that's and I, I, I am truly bitter about the number of talented people that have just pretty much burnt themselves up with mm-hmm. drugs and alcohol and things like that. I mean, what an incredible loss of talent and creativity that we. Have you ever heard of the 27 Club? No. Really? Oh, the 27, that they... It's all of these musicians. I mean, it's like to a creepy, the, 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 epic the proportion. At age 27. At age 27. And it's it's not just like a couple. It's hundreds we have... of musicians that have died at the age of 27. From Amy Winehouse to Jim Morrison and... Uh, and uh, Janis Joplin, Kurt Cobain, uh, Kurt Cobain well, all these people. It was like a contractual obligation. They get 27 years to do what they're going to do, and then they're out. But if when you put when you're put in that situation, at about that time, there is a change in your maturity. Just like just like you go through puberty, there may be a change right mm-hmm. about that time as you approach your 30s. Uh, 26 is when the brain finishes yeah, myelinating. So. You're so right they're then. kind of straddling that I'm no longer a kid feel and I'm now facing adulthood. Right. And, and, and I, think they, I think they realize, like, they can fully grasp how messed up their life is at that that's point. It. That, that, it just, that, that's what happens is that the myelination or the maturation of the brain mm-hmm. and the final pathways are connected. And all of a sudden, <laughs> all of a sudden Ernestine connects, you know, yeah, you right. with reality. And you're like, oh, I don't like this. See, what I think is, is really fascinating about Jim Morrison and – that that was kind of the first celebrity that did they fake their death. And, you know, it's so easy to sit back and roll your eyes. But here's what I find really intriguing about it, um, that it's been so prevalent in different parts. And here Morrison goes to France, is trying to reboot his life, trying to get his his life back together. And then all of a sudden this mysterious death, right? And and that's the end of his story. But then Ray Manzarek on, uh, I think it was... uh, Friday night videos. He was, he was key, one of the hosts. He was the keyboardist, right? With the doors. in the eighties, came out and while drunk, hosting this, admitted Morrison had faked his own death in, in a roundabout way. But you know that he was live. My friend, uh, and I don't know if I'm a, a friend of mine who's a very famous photographer, All right? Um, in the sixties and took quite a few pictures of of the doors. Said that he has pictures of Jim after his death. So that he, well, who's in the coffin? I don't quite understand how you fake that. That that, that you know you got to have. But a it body. wasn't it wasn't an open casket deal. There wasn't anything there to see, and and that he got buried in France. Yeah, he's up and in, he's up in up by, I think he's up by Montmartre, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah but I'm but sorry. I just to me that seemed the most interesting. And then it's even funny when you see the the Doors movie, the way Oliver Stone ends it is it's not like Jim Morrison. It says it is said that on this day Jim Morrison died. Oh, cool. And then it says two years later. His girlfriend joined him. Pamela? Yeah. So it was kind of, what a weird way to word that. Yeah. Where, right? And, and that's what they based that uh, where is he? in the oh, cruisers. Where, 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 okay. Where would he go? I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, deny, I'm not denying this. Sure. I believe that's 100% that exactly what happened. But where do you think he chose to go? Well, if he was in France and, and was he was heavy set, had a beard, if he was, you know, there were a lot of ways to change your look. And once people aren't looking for you anymore... Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, if you if you make a radical difference, people people come up to you all the time. And go, well, you look like. Does anybody ever tell you you look? I get a lot of that, you know. So if, yeah. if it could be real easy to play off the fact that, oh yeah, I get that all the time. And so, and a lot of people had that look at that time. 
right? He's in Saint-Rémy-de-Provence. Actually, there was a rancher. There was a rancher, a a cowboy rancher, that claimed that he was Jim Morrison. It's a twisted, funny story. I love the the conspiracies regarding the deaths of celebrities. And did they or didn't they? Like the whole idea of did McCartney really die and get replaced? Um, Did Morrison fake his own death? Did Elvis fake his own death? Now, in that case... Here's a really weird piece of information, right? What, are you working up material for uh, No, <laughs> right. Show? Well, we did this on our show. I've covered it yeah. on, on Darkness Radio. What I Here's the one thing that's the most important part of it to me. The whole, did Elvis fake his death? If you lived a life like Elvis, wouldn't you want a life back again? Yeah, I, you know, and we've, we've talked about that, how um, a, a life of fame, when, you, when you're visually recognized in, in so easily, is that it is... It can. It, many people say it can be very hard, and I can. I can see that the, the intrusion in your life and, well, and the there's lack different of privacy. Levels. Yeah, like course. Neil Diamond can ride the subway in New York, and he'll get some accolades and attention. Like there's that famous footage. I don't know if you've mm-hmm. seen in the subway where he's sitting there, and then they start singing "Sweet Caroline," and he stands up and joins in. Um, but he can just kind of be there without being harassed. Elvis could go nowhere without screaming, yelling, harassment, people all over him, mobbing him. So that's a different life. I mean, he had to he had to rent out Disneyland in its entirety at night for him and his entourage because they couldn't go at any other time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, that it, life would be so isolating and oh. Horrible. And does it have to do with who really loves you the most? Right? And who the the intensity right. the intensity of your shows when you when Neil Diamond performs, you know, most of the people that are seeing him, you know really didn't never responded to them the way they responded to the Beatles, the way they responded to Elvis. Right. I mean, the, the young people. But that's what I'm saying. The different levels of celebrity, when you get into that realm where you can't move without people going absolutely nuts, I could see wanting to be, you know, is there a way to get out of this? Or And not so much different levels, but different levels of intensity. Well, and and with the whole, did Elvis die? We we talked to Gail Brewer, Giorgio, who was kind of the researcher on this, and she wrote some interesting books. But she said here, and she had sent me the disc with all the information. She goes, here's the couple of things you need to consider. She goes, I can't tell you if he's still alive, but I know that he, he lived past the date he supposedly died. Here's how I know. And it was like six or seven months after his death, there's a signed affidavit regarding um, this mob investigation. The mob, Elvis had bought this boat from a mob doctor oh, yeah. or something like that. And he signed the affidavit. So they said that he's basically in, in um, uh, witness protection is basically, but because of his commitment to law enforcement, that was his ultimate deal. He could help them bust this, this criminal ring. So he did what he had to do. Now, the other thing to consider is Elvis's finances were in really horrible condition at the end of his life. I think he only had a net worth of like a million and a half dollars. Hmm. And after his death, record sales, movie sales, everything soared and made that into a multi-billion dollar industry, right? So you've got all of this change. Now, again, you could say, okay, right, but but that is what it is. But it wasn't until I think uh, the last time that they documented it was like 1989 or 1990. His personal Social Security was still paying – his personal Social Security was still paying income tax. You don't pay. Is Michael still with us? You don't pay income tax after you're dead, yeah. right? Yeah. Your your estate will, but your personal income tax is gone. So that was kind of an interesting aspect. But we did a show on did Michael Jackson take his death? <laughs> and he's another one that's it's a crazy enough cat that you could think maybe he'd do this. Um, but we we had a great show with that one. This woman Pearl Junior. She she talks you through the whole scenario and why she believes that he faked his death. And it sounds crazy, but when you start looking at the quote-unquote clues, there's a lot of really weird things that cat did that afterwards leaves you believing maybe there so, is something so, to this. So is there a land that would be called, say, Kamakanda? Where all of these people have yeah. gone, so yes. you go to Comic Con, you know, and you you got you have you have you have John Belushi, sure, you have no, he's you know, John Candy, you have uh, oh John John Candy, uh, Chris Farley, Chris Farley, right? You know, you have all they're all there. Oh, uh, um, Sam Kinison, well, Sam Kinison, well, you have Andy Kaufman too, Andy Kaufman. who supposedly they, they're all death. there. And then what would be the equivalent the equivalent music uh, you know, secret country? Um, uh, Pepperland. Right, <laughs> your Pepperland. So you got this. You have all the musicians there. You know they're performing to each other and enjoying each other, and it's a private. And they have that secret power. And everything. Have you ever heard the curse of a took? 
No. This is really kind of another cool, crazy, weird story if we're going to talk out of the box. Andy, you might like this because it's, it's another weird deal with movies, right? There was this script being shopped around called A Took about this Eskimo who is kind of a fish out of water. It's kind of like a Crocodile Dundee story. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And, and it was originally given to John Belushi, who then died. And then it kind of languished for a while, and then it was given to John Candy, who died. And then it was given to Sam Kinison, who died. And Kinison's death is really weird. He has that accident, right? It is such a horrible accident. Doctors can't figure out how he got. He got out of his vehicle, walked down the road, started talking to the sky. There was witnesses watching him. He's like, I don't know. What? What? All right. Okay. All right. And then he laid down and died. He was having a conversation with this guy, and he's an ex-preacher, which was weird. So then now you've got Belushi dead. John Candy's dead. You've got Sam Kinison's dead. The script was then handed over to... Um, Not Chris Farley. Chris Farley. Oh, come on. It was the last script. No, but this is it's all something that's legitimate. This isn't just Hollywood junk. And here's the other thing. He gave a copy of the script. Chris Farley gave a copy of the script to Phil Hartman and said, would you look this over? Does this sound like a good deal for me? And then Phil Hartman was shot to death. So it, talk about a weird deal. Man, I don't know. Now, come on. Come no, it's on. true. No, is no, it? it's, it's, I looked it it's up. legitimately it's true. absolutely true. Yes, 100% yep. true. This was there a book been written? It must have been a book been written. No. I, well, there's books that have been written that talk about the story, and nobody ever comes out and says, no, that's not the case. They can paper trail it because of the network, but they've I guess they shelved it. They ended up doing another version of it that they were able to release. But it's just uh, what a what a strange deal. Right, oh, I mean, to have that many that. people attached to one thing. But when you look, again, looking at the Michael Jackson death, all the heat that guy had on him, all the weird things that were going mm-hmm. on, he was married to Elvis' daughter at one time. If anybody was going to fake their death, again, you think this guy's got well, the wherewithal he, to do it. Yeah, and he said he, he, he was he in probably, financial he, ruin. He, yeah, and, and after afterwards, he's, you know, he was he's married to Elvis' daughter. Elvis' daughter said, hey, my dad did this, you know, everything right. goes through the roof. You know, it's pretty straightforward. You know, this is what you do, blah, 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 blah. You know, next time we're done. So... And if you look at a lot of the album covers afterwards, which was really weird, too, there's all of these posthumous albums that show it. And in one, it says Escape, and it looks like he's in a body bag. And it, it, the name of the album is Escape, and the body bag is, like, being pulled up over him. It's really bizarre. It's just, it, but again, it's fun to sit there and play the guessing game. But if you look at some of the weird clues, even if it's completely harebrained, it's still just, you're, like, clicking in it going, what the hell? That is wild. Why would they do that? Yeah, right. But here's the other thing to consider. Conrad Murray, and when we talked about it on the show, Conrad Murray, who gave the, the fatal shot of propofol, right? Right. When Paris uh, Jackson tried to commit suicide, they have the voicemail. He called her, and he's like, honey, you know, everything's going to be fine. Your dad is so proud of you. Not your dad would have been proud of you. Not any of that. He's talking regularly. And if, you're, if your father was killed by this guy, would you be taking phone calls from him? No. No. So doesn't that seem weird? And then this guy kills one of the greatest artists of our time, and then he's out in two years, and he had a pretty easy going deal while he was in prison. He could communicate and get in and out. It, again, it seems like there's some kind of hinkiness going on there. Yeah, it, it's enough to so make you sit there and scratch your head. I, so we have to I, look. I for, we have to look for a you know like a 250 pound Michael Jackson. Yes. <laughs> I like to wash myself with a sponge on a stick. Uh, it, it, again, do I buy into all of this? No, but I love talking about it because I think it's fascinating that <laughs> how people want their celebrities to stay alive no matter what, so. and they'll look at these connections. Uh, let's take a quick break. We've got more coming your way, plus an update. MGM Resorts International is now suing more than 1,000 victims from Las Vegas mass shooting, denying any liability. We'll talk about that next on the Tom Bernard Show. It's Tom telling you how easy it's been to lose weight at Nutramost Twin Cities in Plymouth with their weight loss plan. I'm down 77 pounds, and in a couple of weeks, I'll do one more round to shed the rest of my unwanted pounds. Find out how to have success losing weight like I did by attending the Nutramost Twin Cities in Plymouth free informational dinner. It's on Monday, July 23rd at 6 p.m. at Jake's in Plymouth. I'll see you there. That extra baggage melts away really fast, and one of the best parts is it's just so easy. I am never hungry. Nutramost Twin Cities in Plymouth has educated me on clean eating, and I now know the foods that work for me and the weight gain trigger foods, too. That's important. Nutramost Twin Cities in Plymouth will guarantee that you lose 20 pounds or more in just 40 days. Nutramost Twin Cities in Plymouth has helped me change my life, and they can help you, too. Register for the Nutramost Twin Cities in Plymouth dinner on July 23rd. 
Just call 763-333-7337. That's 763-333-7337. If you are a homeowner, you do not want to miss this free event. We are hosting a free seller workshop where we are going to teach you how to net between thirty dollars to $60,000 more on your home sale. Plus, we are going to share our proven systems that will instantly put the control back in your corner. Guarantee yourself the results you deserve when it comes time to sell your house. Our exclusive workshop will be sold out shortly, so call now to secure your free ticket by calling 763-401-SOLD or by visiting sellerworkshop.com. This free seller workshop will be held the week of August 6th. The last workshop sold out very fast, so hurry and call Chris Lindahl Real Estate today to save your free ticket. So call now, 763-401-SOLD, or visit sellerworkshop.com for times, locations, and to secure your free ticket. Okay, you know how it works. Uh, I don't promote people that aren't the real deal or don't do the right thing. This is not a bare-bones situation at all. And the best part is it's free. show is just ignorant. <laughs> You're acting like a bunch of children. It's all lies. It's all lies. But, what? You, uh, but, I, but well, I, was, I was laughing at the end of the last segment. I was thinking that you know, all these people have, have put on 100 pounds. So it's a ignorant. I don't think his voice would change. You don't, oh, you still have the well, high voice? Actually, with Michael, I guess his pipes the, what was the, the special he did? Um, uh, this is it? No, not this is it. It's the Halloween one. Not thriller, but it was... Oh, ghosts. Ghosts, that's what it was. He had that fat suit on because he was that older guy that brought the kids the in the house. The old white guy. And there's actually... He, would, he performed cons- in whiteface? Yes. Yeah, he was an overweight uh, white guy. He did that through most of the end of his career, though. <laughs> You're touching the nerve there but for a lot of people. Said, but it's um, true. There's been speculation. There's a guy that looks like that, and they think that's actually Michael. Like a, a real life person that he put on this fat suit, so when he goes out in public, nobody knows it's him. Well, right. They said that he would go out for what religion was he? He was a Jehovah's, Jehovah's Witness. Witness. He would go out in well, costume as Jehovah's no. Witness to to talk to people. Was he? Yes. Yeah. Because I thought Prince was Jehovah's Witness. He yeah. was too. He was too yeah. Michael that's Jackson why, was a Jehovah's Witness. That's why in the beginning of Thriller they have that disclaimer saying this is you know the he views or something the occult and, the occult all that, right? and everything the. Uh, Kingdom Hall made him put that up there because they're not supposed to celebrate Halloween, Christmas, anything of that nature. Oh, yeah, I he mean, was until 1987. His family got a lot of flack because the Jackson 5 put out a lot of Christmas yep. albums and everything else. But if you notice, a lot of their Christmas music had no religious connotation whatsoever. It was basically just commercial Christmas how come, come Streisand and Neil Diamond don't get trouble from their people? Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Not Christmas music. <laughs> because yeah. they understand. Uh, right. they, they understand the. You are uh, such a profiler. Econ- the ne- economics of and, um, uh, the holidays. When Prince became a Jehovah Witness. He, that's why he doesn't do some of his older songs because of the sexual content it has. Yeah. So he's like, I won't do those songs anymore because of his religious views. So, and he would go door to door as well, but he wouldn't dress up as cut. He just says, hi, I'm uh, Brother Nelson. That's what he called himself when he went door to door, Brother Nelson. So he would go door to door, and he must have have gone in neighborhoods that were... In his area, in Chanhassen and all that. That He would have gone door to door. He said they've shown up, wait a second, right? It's Prince. I know, Prince. right? Will you sign this copy of the Watchtower for me? I'll take it if you sign the copy of the Watchtower. I'll go to your church, but I need your autograph. My cousin's Jehovah's Witness. And, My uncle you know, is and, too. And he went through the, this whole process, and he softened his uh, stance a little bit. But you know, mm-hmm. some are more hardcore witnesses than others. Yeah, yeah, but with Michael Jackson, um, yeah, it's it's interesting the whole the whole weirdness of, of the story. I mean, there, and in his level, there's so many different aspects. And when we did that show on darkness radio, uh, and I should dig that up and maybe I'll get it to Andy. If they ever want to throw it up as a piece of content on here, we had a guy call in and he was her, this, uh, Pearl, her friend. And she said, she's talking to Michael. She's friends with Michael. And then during the deal, she hits me up on social media and she goes, he would like to call in. I'm like, okay, and I give the phone number, but I forgot to tell the producer because Tim wasn't there that night. Yeah. 
And I forgot to tell the producer, and all of a sudden I see the phone ring, and he's like, and he's mouthing, and then he hangs up the phone. And I go, uh, was that a call? He goes, yeah, some, I think some uh, uh, screwball caller. I said, no, put him through. I'm waiting for that call. <laughs> and I'm waiting for, like, the worst imitation <laughs> of, of Michael Jackson ever. This guy gets on the phone and talks with us for about 10, 15 minutes. And, <laughs> Ralph, this guy's Im- imitation was so spot on that it, it actually had me starting to question, were we talking to Michael Jackson? So the psychology is... You get to a point in your life where it, it really becomes the fame and all the adulation, everything really does become too much. Sure. The money is just not worth it for a variety of reasons, whether it's psychiatric reasons. I'd like whether to get to that point. Sociological <laughs> reasons. I mean, there's a thought. No, but there's there are, at a point you get to, and you have a choice. You can either kill yourself or fake your death. And you, because you, you, want, you want it out. You right. want to be able to do something else because you're done, because you burn out. You really truly burn out the, in the worst way possible, and you want to do something else. So you know you can you know I think um, mentally I can I can make an argument or make and have an understanding as to why that would happen. Mm-hmm. Where who? Well, especially in Michael's case because he was so far in debt, he was doing all these concerts that he signed on that he knew he physically could not do. I mean, he even um, I mean, Latoya said it. I don't know how much her word is worth but she says he michael would call her and say they're gonna kill me i can't do this but i think he was forced to do it because of his financial uh predicament that he was in live nation had sunk so much money and you know they had insurance so when he passed away live nation made up all the money that they'd spent on this production yeah and covered their losses that would have been coming so everybody would have come out financially okay and the jackson fortune climbed right back up yeah so, you know, it gives you pause to think maybe there's something Sorry. to some of these stories. But again, you know, does, do I believe that they faked their own death? I, I would say out of out of all of the stories, I believe Morrison, Elvis, and Michael would have been the ones to do it. So here's the, here's the picture. So, so uh, Michael's there, and he's sitting you're there in a room like this, and they they sitting sitting around the table, and uh, Michael's financial planner's there, and his attorney's <laughs> there, and everything. I said, they're there with my, now, Michael. Michael, hear us out. Hear us out here. We got, we're, we've thought this through. We've given a lot of time on this. Think this through. I think it'd be best at this point for you to fake your own death. No, no, no. Hear me out. Hear me out. Look, 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 at the look at the finances here. Look what happened to Elvis. Look at the, you know, you can finance it. We got, uh, we, we got your former wife here. She, she got some, in, so it'd be a bit like a, uh, it'd be like a financial intervention. See, this is how right. we're going to do this. You know, you're going to. This is how we're going to save the finances, save the the empire. That's right, save the empire, and you're going to be, you're going, all your family's going to be. Fat and you cast can still release this. new albums. We just call them posthumous albums, and we find these in your vault. It's mm-hmm. going to be okay. And they released what, like four albums so far of unreleased music of of Michael's. Yeah. It was like, how about yeah. Tupac's released like twenty albums since <laughs> that his was death? one of my favorite days. Tupac, Chappelle. yeah, yeah. Can Tupac. you look that up, Andy? Tupac, how many albums has he released since his death? Well, they had that yeah. skit in Dave Chappelle where they're in a club and they're dancing, and it's Tupac, and all of a sudden, oh, here's some new unreleased Tupac, and it, and they start, and it starts, he starts rapping about current, yeah. new oh. <laughs> like current events in his mm-hmm. song, and and Dave Chappelle's kind of looking around like. Uh, <laughs> you know, and it was just funny. Like it even comment like uh, Tupac rapped what uh, Dave Chappelle was wearing at the club that night. So it was just kind of a funny, yeah, because they kept saying Tupac faked his own death as well. Oh, uh, okay. So all celebrity now. Now, you, now you get you get to a point. No, you know, no watershed where oh, everybody faked their own well, death. Right, they, again, but that's because people yeah. don't want to let go of their mm. celebrity heroes. That's right, mm-hmm. and yeah. and they they don't. But like I said, the wherewithal. I think Morrison would have that would have been a time in history he could have pulled that off. Elvis also, and uh, then you've got uh, Michael would be the only other candidate to me that seems like he could have gotten away with it. And it's just an extension. Of the idea that they people do anything to get next or close to a celebrity to be on TV and things like that, people will do everything not to give up the memory of their stars, right? Mm-hmm. Anything because it's just it's just too painful, or they just just want to want to believe that. Did you find that by any chance, Andy? How many albums Tupac is? Uh... Uh, five, five since his death, and how many before he died? Like two or three. Oh, he had quite a few. Did he really? No, he one, two, three, four, also five. So he had enough albums to do five more since he died. 
Yeah. Of all new Half tracks. Half of his music was mm. after he died, yeah. So what, did they just they just wrung out everything that they could possibly find? Obviously, yeah. I mean, unless you count things like um, compilation albums, because there were a lot of those. Yeah, he did a lot of stuff. Compilation albums. and Records and other artists that they had on there. Uh, he died in 90... When? 96 or 97? 96, yeah. So there are tons of things that came out after 96 for i don't i don't know why collaboration albums there was one in 99 two live albums which and who who was the ukrainian dignitary who faked his own death there was a ukrainian uh the prime minister i don't know but olivia newton john's no, husband no, he, did too. he faked his own death to try to uh, bring out uh, some Russian plot uh, to assassinate him and things like that, mm. and he faked his own death. So uh, at his home, uh, he had a bunch of uh, thugs come over, and they shot him, and he had the blood pouches and everything like that, shot him up, and then they uh, whisk him away in an ambulance, and then there's an announcement where he died. And then the next day later, he shows up and says, hey, I'm not dead. But it was, it was just sort of a ploy to try to draw out this conspiracy to uh, for his death. And they say that it worked, but... Yeah, so, yes, it can be done. And, uh, yeah, I can't. F- oh, wait, maybe we I found it. St- we seem to be stuck on this. Ar- no. Arkady, oh, is a Russian journalist. Was it a journalist? Yeah, Arkady, Bar- I, I'm not going to even pronounce, try and pronounce that last name. <laughs> but a Russian, let's see, let's click on it and see what happens. Yeah, it was in the Ukraine. A uh, Russian journalist known to be critical of the Kremlin had reported to been shot near his apartment That's it. in Kiev. That's it. I'm sorry. Arkady yeah. Bobchenko. Bobchenko. Yes. Bobchenko? Is that how you pronounce that? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, it's just kind of a bunch of gibberish on this news story. It doesn't really because it's not translating well, I'm guessing. Yeah. So he faked his own death. To, he faked, to, faked his own death to try to bring... Well, the, the government came to him and says, hey, we think that people are going to assassinate you. We want to try to break this conspiracy or get these people to come out. So, and they... With with uh, electronic eavesdropping and things like that, the people that were planning this sort of thing, they uh, faked his death and then monitored those uh, transmissions and those sort of things from the people that they suspected and were able to, in essence, uh, prove that these people were planning on this and they were able to get these people. Yeah, because it just says on Wednesday, but this was back in May, the journalist yeah. shocked the world when he showed up at a Ukrainian police press conference very much alive and unscathed. <laughs> oh, this like just happened. Yeah. Yeah. This so was like a couple, a couple of months ago. Just yeah. a couple yeah. of months ago. And uh, stay away from Novacek. The Novacek nerve gas. That's the other, only other thing. Hmm. So many deep, dark secrets you knew, you know about. It's the Kremlin. Yeah. Hey, let's mention this. Talking about weird conspiracies, you've heard people say that the Las Vegas shooting did not happen, right? That that was a red flag deal. Well, there's always. The truthers yeah. say that it wasn't. You shot up an entire deal, and there's video footage of it, but it didn't happen. You know, people were videotaping concerts, and you could hear the and people running and screaming, but it didn't happen. Uh, That, to me, is weird. But there's a story that just came out 10 hours ago. Uh, MGM Resorts International is now suing more than 1,000 victims from Las Vegas mass shooting, denying any liability. MGM Resorts International claimed in a new lawsuit that it has no liability in any of those injuries or deaths in the October mass shooting in Las Vegas. The company, which owns Mandalay Bay and the Route 91 Harvest Festival venue, argued that its security vendor took all necessary precautions approved by the Department of Homeland Security for protecting against and responding to acts of mass injury and destruction, according to the suit acquired by the Las Vegas Review-Journal. And uh, it says MGM has now sued more than 1,000 victims of the shooting. I've never seen a more outrageous thing where they sue the victims in an effort to find a judge they like. Attorney Robert Eglett, who represented some of the victims, told the Review Journal, accusing MGM of judge shopping in federal court rather than state court where he believes any lawsuits should be filed. It's just really sad that they would stoop to this level. Stephen Paddock, 64, opened fire from the 32nd floor of the Mandalay Bay Hotel into the crowd at the Route 91 Harvest Musical Festival last year killing 58 people and leaving more than 850 injured. So this is a countersuit. It doesn't say a countersuit. It says that they're they're suing a thousand victims of the shooting. So I don't know. I'm sure it's a countersuit. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. Otherwise, yeah, it makes no sense that they that they would bring action against these people if these people weren't uh, mm-hmm. in, in in a, well, I'm sure a, they're a, suit, to, a large suit against right. them. 
It is a countersuit. But why? I don't know. That that seems like it's a black guy, unless it's a, a you know, it's just a legal yeah. step that has to be taken to try to protect your assets on this. But uh, if if a guy was able to smuggle that many weapons into your hotel, remove the window, and then begin shooting from there, shouldn't there be some culpability? for security of the hotel, especially well, in a post-9-11 time? Because well, that's pretty scary to know that a guy could get in with that many weapons and nobody knew. Well, he, well what, how are you going to know? How many people have you walked You know, did, uh, they, so they're going to have to search every person's luggage mm-hmm. that goes to the, the lobby, everything that's in their luggage? Because, you you know, you can dr- you drive into Las Vegas, you drive into from uh, Utah or Arizona, and uh, you have a, your trunk's filled with... Uh, your stuff, and you just start hauling it up to your room. We have Connie. We do. Well, I'll tell you what. We're right up against the break, so we'll uh, take a break. Our next guest will be with us in just a few minutes, uh, or a few seconds, so stay with us. We've got a lot more coming your way, and we've got some more news stories we'll cover next uh, hour. A lot of weird scientific finds we'll discuss on the show. I'm Dave Schrader filling in. Tom will be back with you guys tomorrow right here on the Tom Bernard Show. Tom Bernard here to tell you, Priority Courier Experts has immediate openings for drivers looking for more. Priority drivers are independent contractors who set their own hours, start from their own driveways, and deliver local on-call parcels and freight, which means you're home for dinner every night, and you get paid weekly. Right now, Priority's driver-friendly lease-to-own program has brand-new dock trucks, flatbeds, curtain sides, and tractor trailers just waiting to be driven home. And Priority is also offering a $4,000 sign-on bonus to qualified drivers. So if you've got the skills, we can get you qualified to start driving a brand new truck in as little as three days. Calling all drivers. Come get the $4,000 sign-on bonus you deserve for all the knowledge and experience you bring to the delivery business. Call Roger or Eddie right now, 651-748-4477, or visit them online at drivewithpriority.com. Priority Courier Experts. Every time you call us, we deliver. Tom here for Sabre Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning. When you call Sabre for service, you'll get a certified technician that's an expert at diagnosing, repairing, and installing heating and air conditioning equipment. Sabre Techs give you the service you need, not the other stuff that you don't need. When you combine that with Sabre's A rating for customer service and the best equipment from Bryant, you get exactly what you need. So make the call to Sabre Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning today. Sabre and Bryant, whatever it takes. We're back. This is the Tom Bernard Show. Filling in for Tom Bernard, I'm Dave Schrader. Joining me on the air now to promote her new book, I Hate Your Face and Other Things I Wish I Could Tell My Coworkers. Is it Connie O'Reilly or O'Reese? The first one. Perfect. Connie O'Reilly. Connie O'Reilly. Hi. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate being on. This is, uh, this is great. I love, I love the title of your book. Um, talk, to us a little bit, talk to us a little bit about this. I know you're a, hu- a humor-based writer. Uh, yes. For the uh, Chicago <laughs> Tribune. Definitely not an angry writer. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. But, uh, boy, you're hitting on a lot of topics I think people would uh, certainly be interested in. Again, the book, I Hate Your Face and Other Things I Wish I Could Tell My Coworkers. Uh, wh- what's the uh, the genesis behind this and, and bringing this out finally? Yeah. So, um, I Hate Your Face is essentially a humor-based essay collection on all of the crazy and weird and awkward job situations I've been in over the years. Um, everything from a lemonade stand when I was a little kid that I got pushed out of up to, you know, real-world career jobs that I've had along the way and all of the things that come with that. So crazy coworkers, um, insane deadlines, things like that. Was this book kind of set as a therapeutic release for you? <laughs> Um, Not exactly. Um, It's funny enough, I started off writing a novel one day. Um, I'd always been writing for quite a while. Um, Back in the day, I wrote a blog for the Tribune titled Marathon Misfit um, that was about running a marathon as being a beginning runner, and that was humor-based. So I kind of spread out from there um, to talk about other things in my life. Um, But back to the novel, I tried that for a few months, and it wasn't really going anywhere. It was hard to, you know, put characters together. I don't know how J.K. Rowling does it, but um, it's a lot easier to talk about myself and my own experiences. So that's how this came to be. 
and you decided to uh, kind of face this. I love this. So let's start. I, I want to hear from the beginning here. Your your lemonade, your lemonade stand that you got pushed out, was this a mob-related issue? <laughs> it was not. I am from Chicago, but it was not mob-related. Um, we had um, my sister and my neighbors from across the street were all, you know, doing our thing, being entrepreneurs. Um, my one good neighbor friend, she and I were the older sisters, so we were in charge, and we would give our sisters, you know, tasks to do, like go inside and get some more, you know, country time lemonade scoops from mom so she doesn't come outside and yell at us, uh, go set up the stand, you know, things, you know, general child labor. Um, so we did that. About a half hour probably goes by, and I start drinking the product, and my friend gets mad at me. And I, you know, think in my head, I'm, I'm, 10 maybe not even probably younger than that um sitting here drinking lemonade there's no cost you know we stole it from my mom so really um there's no sense to this so i gave up and i quit and i threw my cup down and i ran inside to watch tv and that has pretty much been the general theme of my work experience since then so that you just quit when the uh, going gets rough is that what you're trying to tell yeah. us connie yeah on to the next thing see what else is new new opportunities stuff like that <laughs> what are when you're moving through your life and, and taking these different positions what, what were some of the standout jobs that you had and people that got on your nerves most oh that's a good question um i think anything customer service related where you have to be nice to people and you can't just you know hide and give them the finger in the background um for me restaurant work was very very difficult. I say in the book that it's some of the most hardworking people I've ever met work in restaurants. So waitresses, chefs, the cooks in the back, uh, the bussers, um, those were the ones that were um, actually great to work with, but then dealing with the customers, like the hangry women that come in for happy hour and want their appetizers immediately were the ones that I didn't care to work with. <laughs> dealing with, the, yeah, the, the food service industry, you have to have a special kind of ability to do that because it, again i sit there and i watch um people mistreat their service staff first of all i'll i'll never do it whether i hate you or not i won't mistreat you for the mere fear that somebody's going to spit in my food so exactly I, that that's, that's a, a big, big one a big portion of it for me but I, i've just <laughs> watched people in the food industry field get treated poorly and then you know what i like to do my wife and i will uh, go up after a good meal and and good service and i'll ask to speak to the manager and i like to try to make sure to to let that that person shine when they seem to really be going out of their way. And you can tell that they've got a rough deal and they've got 20 tables they're working and they still have a personality and a sunny personality for you. But man, it's getting fewer and far between. Even in customer service jobs, that skill is is sorely lacking mm -hmm. with how customer service now treats a lot of the uh, patrons, including myself. I can't believe how I'm talked down to by companies when I'm calling in with an issue, suddenly it becomes my fault that their product is inferior or that there's an issue with it. Um, and it's it's really strange to me how that has also kind of flipped now to nobody takes responsibility even in those cases. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's really surprising. Although I will say, like you said, the ones that are standout experiences, those are always nice to see and they're few and far between. Uh, when I was self-publishing and setting up the book on my end, um, I had to contact customer service for some help with getting the cover up. Um, and this very elderly Eastern European woman answers the phone and she says, what is your book title? And I say, I hate your face. And there's a long pause and she just starts cracking up and then she's just, you know, okay, let me help you. And she was just the sweetest <laughs> angel getting me set up. But I hear what you're saying. What are some of your other favorite standout moments through your illustrious career of dealing with jerky co-workers and bosses? Um, well, there's quite a few in here. Um, it's it's hard to pinpoint a favorite, I think. Um, I definitely have some different ones. Um, things like uh, dealing with my commute on the CTA, which is the Chicago Transit um, brown line and red line that I used to take to work all the time. Um, those are pretty interesting. Um, also, we had a uh, work trip down to New Orleans that kind of went crazy. Um, it ended in uh, one of my co-workers doing the worm in the middle of the street on Bourbon Street, so that was kind of fun. Um, yeah. I think that's everybody's experience when visiting New Orleans and Bourbon Street <laughs> at one it time is, or another. But, you know, everything's heightened when you're with co-workers because right. you have that sense of professionalism and respect about you. So when you see a guy that, you know, you have a report due to him, you know, in five hours and he's in the middle of the street dancing around, it's kind of a different feel. <laughs> 
And how does that change? How you know all those those experiences are supposed to build a team spirit and things like that. How does that change your attitudes the next day in the work environment? Oh, it goes out the window. I mean, <laughs> when somebody's <laughs> dancing around like an idiot, it's hard to you know have that <laughs> hard to come back from line that. of respect and rapport with them. Yeah, but I think it kind of builds you closer. If it's a good experience like the one I had, you know, you're you're more friendly and you're more at ease, so they're able to talk and expand on your ideas together, as opposed to before where you didn't realize you know they were fun and did things outside yeah. of the nine to five. Or that they were vul- or that they were right. vulnerable. I mean, you saw a, a side of them that maybe you now appreciate and can, maybe you can work closer with them. Interesting. Exactly. So yeah, I've, I've exactly. worked in sales for the majority of my life in one way, shape, or another. And one of the guys uh, I used to work with is a guy named John. And in sales, you know, there's a certain uh, element of, of customer service and personality and kindness. And you're supposed to really kind of emotionally involve yourself in these people's mm-hmm. lives to get them to buy. And I was selling very expensive gold and silver coins and collectibles. And, uh, you know, you struggle because hey, right now I'm worried about covering my $800 a month rent. And I'm asking, you know, Ralph Basham to pen, say, you know, send me $8,000 for this gold coin I found for him. So you're living in two different realms, right, and, and trying to deal with that in sales. And this guy, John, who sat behind me was one of the most abrasive, abusive human beings I've ever heard. And it worked for him. Uh, we were sitting there one day. We were selling these uh, the quarter-ounce panda coins from china and he's on the phone and he's talking to this guy he's like yeah i wanted to give you a call i got some and we're selling them individually he's selling them in quarter rolls of five and ten and twenty and he's like yeah i've got some quarter rolls which is asking a lot of money and he goes oh oh you gotta ask your wife okay yeah why don't you do that hey before we do that let me tell you a funny story i took my kid to the zoo the other day and i'm walking through the zoo we walk past the monkey cage and he says dad what are those i said those are monkeys well what do they say well they say "Ooh, ah ah he goes, all right. We walk down. There's a lion. He goes, Dad, what's that? Well, that's a lion. Well, what does a lion say, Dad? Roar. He goes, just then a mouse ran across the sidewalk in front of me, and my son said, what's that? And I said, that's a mouse. And he goes, well, what does a mouse say? <laughs> I have to ask my wife. <laughs> and there's this pause, and all of a sudden he starts laughing, and then he goes, okay, I'll get you two rolls. And it's like, what? You just totally... He balled this guy, and he's on it. But I'm over there trying to be sweet and passionate, you know, taking these guys through it. You're struggling for a fight, and this guy's just, I'm going to talk to you like you're a child and a moron, and you're just going to, and this guy was one of the hottest sales guys on the floor. It was insane to watch happen. It drove me completely crazy. I felt like I'd slipped into bizarro world as the most abusive sales guys around me would just lock down sales like nobody's business. Very, very weird. Yeah, but that was his clientele too. He selected his clientele selected him. I mean, that was, that was a piece yeah, of, guess, that, yeah. of that too. <laughs> Got to wonder what kind of life they live that that was okay well, in their yeah. world to then. Well, you know what? I was treated pretty poorly. Here's five thousand dollars. Let's call it a day. Some people respond well to leadership, even if it's abusive leadership. I tell, Connie, I had a, a funny experience at a company here uh, in Minneapolis um, when I first moved here from Chicago, and I was doing sales. Uh, I had gone through this spate where I was just not able to sleep. I think I was on four days of insomnia. Yikes. And I'm sitting at my desk, and I'm supposed to set these appointments for these motivational speakers because we have our guys go out and sell tickets to their sales staff. And I'm sitting at my desk, and my one boss walks behind me, and I'm taping my middle or my ring finger down on my left hand. I'm taping it to my hand, and my boss is watching me, and I'm knocking sales out left and right that day setting these appointments. And they're, they're kind of watching me to see what's going on. Why am I on fire today? And um, they go in and they're listening to our, our phone line to test to make sure we're not putting up fake deals because I get paid commission on every one of these deals we lock in. And they're like, this guy's on fire. Usually he sends, you know, makes 10 appointments a week. He's made 10 this morning. What is going on? So they, they come over to me and my buddy Kent, my boss at the time, goes, hey, Dave, uh, when you're done with that call, I want to talk. And, All right. So I turn around and he sees me still taping this finger down. And he goes, what are you, what are you doing there? I said, well, oh, no, it wasn't my, my ring finger. It was my pinky. And I said, uh, well, when I woke up this morning, somebody had replaced my pinky with somebody else's. So I'm just taping it down till I can get it home and cut it off. And he, he laughs at me and he goes, all right. And then he goes, hey, are you still are you still having trouble sleeping? I'm like, yeah, I haven't slept well. I think I crashed for about a half an hour this morning. And I said, and that's when I woke up and this finger was put on my hand. And, and 
Kent's expression was priceless, right? And I remember having these conversations. It made complete wow. logical sense as I'm taping this finger down. So they end up getting like all of the bosses together, and they're they're just trying to talk me down. They end up taking me home, loading me up with Benadryl and Nyquil to knock me out, <laughs> yeah. and then I slept for two days. And then they're like, "We'll come back and pick you up for work. Don't worry about it. everything's fine." Wow. Put me out on it. But there was one of the rare instances where I actually worked for a company who cared about their people. But that seems to have gone out the window nowadays too. There's very few companies that seem to see any worth in the people that they they employ or work with why do you think that's going on connie i don't know but i see that a lot and i always say that if you are thinking about starting with a company and you see a ping pong in their table in their break room run yeah because the more they're trying to make it fun and inviting and exciting and you know have the bar there set up for you um the more they want you to stay there around the clock um, which i've seen before um but i don't know i think they try but there's just never that good click, you know, um, work is to work. You're supposed to do something there. You're supposed to complete a task. Um, you're not supposed to be there necessarily to party and, you know, slack off, essentially. You know, Mental note. You are. <laughs> never take a job yeah. with Connie. She's a taskmaster. <laughs> <laughs> you want me to actually come to work and work for you, Connie? Get out of here. Exactly. But, yeah, I, I mean, it's. The ones that you that I've found that I've stayed at the longest are where the employees and managers respect you and respect that you have a life outside of the office and want your time there to be um, important and special in learning and growing. So that's where I've always stayed the longest. Do you have a, Do you have one career in your your portfolio that you wish you would have uh, skipped altogether? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I would say working for the state. That was pretty uh, pretty rough in terms of dullness and not getting much done around there. I mean, I like slacking off, but even I was bored at one point. So oh, that, <laughs> that's actually where my blog started. So that bodes well. What were you doing for the state at the time? Um, I was doing market research for them um, for housing and things like that. And just uh, a boring one of those mind-numbing kind of jobs. Yes, it's one of those where they still had file cabinets and you know, printed things off of the fax machine and walked it over to the extra department that was set up there and all that stuff. So very old school and in the, you know, later 2000s. So very flashback in time. Well, very cool. The book is out and available. I hate your face and other things I, I wish I could tell my coworkers. Can they get that through Amazon and most of the online sellers? They can, yes. It's available now on Amazon in paperback and Kindle. Very cool. Connie O'Reyes, thank you for joining us and spending a little time here today. Thank you so much, Dave. I really appreciate it. It's been great chatting with you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, jobs, man. When you look back through your career, how many jobs did you have? I, I can, you know, I've actually lucked out into a lot of things. I, my first jobs were at, at Showbiz Pizza. I loved it. I worked mm -hmm. for TJ Maxx. I loved it. I worked in a lot of sales environments, which can be tough. But I've, I've really liked a lot of the stuff I've, I've had a chance to do. Um, like this show. We're going to take a break. Stay tuned. There's more coming your way on the Tom Bernard Show.